Ford's family, as we progress through the book of Daniel, much of what we studied together before in 1 Thessalonians, Joel, and Zechariah rises to further illustrate Daniel's records and vice versa. And as I wrote out the text of my, my sermon for this week, as in every week we have had in Daniel, I was assailed by brain fog from some preternatural force. That is warfare. Know that I'm praying for you as you listen and receive for your spiritual state as well. All right, last week we were in Daniel chapter 8, and the two shorter-term prophecies given to and through Daniel regarding the confirmation of the long-term prophecy in Daniel 7 of the Antichrist. In Daniel's vision of a ram that rises and is unstoppable as it strikes out to the south, the west, and the north, Gabriel came to interpret for Daniel. The ram is picturing the Persian Empire. Next, Daniel saw a male goat with one horn rushing across the land to strike the ram, breaking its horns and trampling it down. That was the Greek Empire, swiftly advancing and destroying the forces of the Persian armies. Alexander's armies conquered everything from Macedonia to the Indus River in three and a half years. Alexander suddenly died and he was swiftly followed by his two sons that were murdered. In chapter 7, Daniel had seen the leopard with four wings and four heads representing the four kingdoms that would divide all that Alexander had conquered. Chapter 8 points south, where out of the Seleucid kingdom rose a small horn, a ruler who had a hard face, with military power and hatred for the Jews. Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, won battles over most of Egypt to the south and the Parthians and Armenians to the east. And then he turned his savagery on Palestine. He was an evangelist for the Greek culture, language, worship of the gods, and way of life. He ruthlessly killed 40,000 Jews in Jerusalem and sent 40,000 into slavery and then ordered that the high priest in Jerusalem be killed, replacing him with a Hellenized Jew. He forbade the keeping of the Sabbath, the keeping of kosher, circumcision, and keeping the feasts of Israel. He looted the temple, destroyed the altar of burnt offerings to Yahweh, built another altar, and set up a statue to Zeus and offered pigs on that altar in the temple. He issued coinage with his image, and the stamped words, God manifest. He was a madman. At the end of three years of three and a half years of rage against Jerusalem and Palestine, Antiochus rushed off to fight the Parthians to the east, leaving Lysias to keep crushing Palestine. Lysias and his forces were overrun by the army raised by the Maccabee family, and then the temple was cleansed. On hearing of the defeat back in Jerusalem, Antiochus greatly magnified himself before his troops. And when he stopped speaking, God struck him with a terminal disease. The text said the small horn would be killed without human intervention. Just so. 200 years separated the division of the Greek Empire into four kingdoms pictured by the four-headed leopard. 
400 years separated the prophecy of the small horn from Daniel. And now we know why he kept those two prophecies hidden in his heart. In his heart. Those were the shorter term prophecies, but they were so far distant, he could not mention those to the other people of Judah. So let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we live in an ahistoric culture. We think little of events of the past that have produced blessing or cursing upon us now. Lord, we would repent of being homocentric, man-centered, rather than theocentric, God-centered, to keep watch of what you are doing. Please draw us out to understand how we got to where we are in America and in the church. These are critical days. Around us, we see parts of the body of Christ embracing truly unholy, godless, wicked expressions. Lord, we do not judge our brothers and sisters. We judge ourselves. Holy Spirit, help us see our own log in the eye. Please help us see clearly, think clearly, act clearly, and pray clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 9 of Daniel has two distinct parts. Daniel's prayer for repentance is awesome, spot on, and a great template for personal and familial evaluation and national evaluation and repentance. I don't often get overwhelmed with tears when I study, but this passage got me. The last verses of Daniel 9 are a further prophecy, one that is both amazing and highly targeted by those who utterly reject biblical prophecy. Put on your armor, family. Verses 1 to 3 sets the stage for Daniel's prayer. It is the first year, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Again, the names of Darius and Hasuerus are titles. This Darius is likely to have been Gobrius, the Mede general who conquered the city of Babylon at night. And this is not the Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. He will rise during the next 200 years or sometime during the the, the Persian Empire to reign in Susa. Daniel was searching the scriptures, including the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, given to Jeremiah only decades previously. Daniel takes Jeremiah as holy scripture and on examination finds that here is a terminus, a quo, an end point for the, de- the desolations of Jerusalem and the exile of Judah. When he finds the number being 70 years, doing a quick calculation, he thrusts himself into prayer and specific requests of the Lord, but in an ultimately humble way. The fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, or, or dust reference, appears 23 times in Scripture, beginning with Jacob's grief at the apparent death of his son, Joseph. Likewise with Job. 
all over the Middle East, this grief policy and practice was seen to enhance one's self-degradation, taking oneself out of the equation so that the focus could be fully on Yahweh, or in the case of idol worshippers, whatever non-gods that they chose to worship. Daniel, long-term high official to two empires and five kings, lay all his attributions aside and humbled himself before God. He knows in his bones the history of Judah and Israel as they rejected God and his prophets. Resulting in God's promises through Moses of a savage curse that fell upon Judah. Daniel begins with rightful address to God, one of praise and adoration, despite the woeful state of his people. Quote, and I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and, all, and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from thy commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. <clears throat> Daniel begins by addressing Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And that <clears throat> opens the door to also include Adonai, the Almighty One, a further expression of God Most High. <clears throat> and, excuse me, the covenant that Daniel begins with is the covenant that Yahweh made with Abraham and the loyal love with which God had lavished on Abraham's descendants when they kept the Lord's commandments. Daniel does not present any of Israel's faithful deeds, but instead immediately begins with Israel's unfaithfulness, sins, iniquity, wickedness, and rejection of Yahweh, choosing instead to worship and serve idols. Further, Israel and Judah did not obey Yahweh's commandments and ordinances. Daniel casts back to the second generation following Joshua. Joshua. That's, that's maybe 60 years after the death of Moses. Three generations, okay? And Israel had already departed the law of God and was worshiping the Baals. That was 700 years previous. Through those years, God kept sending prophets who were nearly universally rejected by kings, priests, princes, forefathers, and all the people. <clears throat> Verses 7 to 14 follow. Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who, have, who are near and those who are far away in all the countries to which they have been driven, because of their unfaithful deeds, which they've committed against thee. Open shame belongs to us, to our kings, our princes, and fathers, because we have sinned against thee. <clears throat> to the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teaching, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed thy law, and turned aside, not obeying thy voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath that was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his word, 
which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity for under the whole heaven there has not been anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity was, has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to thy truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Daniel states the Lord is righteous in all his ways, but Israel and Judah stand in open shame. He says it twice. Open in the sense that the watching nations and people are using the defeat of Judah and the crushing of Jerusalem as evidence that their worship of this one God, Yahweh, had failed. Those watchers saw Jerusalem as a reproach and evidence of Yahweh's inadequacy to protect them. Here Daniel slips in the compassion and forgiveness of God parenthetically. Now all that's true. His compassion and his forgiveness. That's all true, but it had not yet been applied to the exiles in Babylon. God stands holy and merciful even when we turn away, when we rebel, when we do not obey. His character does not change. Ours does. Daniel goes out of his way to credit Moses with writing down the law. It is that law given by God that has both blessings and curses laid out based on obedience to the law or rejection of that law. Because of Israel's long-term rejection, God had stored up the calamity he promised, the curse he promised, and then poured it out on Judah using the Babylonians as his subcontractors. <clears throat> Stephen Miller comments on verse 12, and it's very pointed. Quote, Daniel's statement regarding the uniqueness of Jerusalem's destruction strikes us as surprising. Certainly other nations had gone into captivity and other cities and temples had been destroyed. Other nations had experienced defeat and deportation, but their gods were idols of lifeless wood, stone, and metal. Now the people of God, the true God, were in exile, and his city and the temple were in ruins. Truly, nothing like this had ever happened in history. Unquote. Daniel is faithful to list the charges against Israel and Judah with the wording, we have sinned. He stands at the front of the line of sinners in his confession, even after a lifetime of being a faithful servant of Yahweh. Family, bolt that to your soul. Finally, beginning in verse 15, Daniel, Daniel starts to make his, his supplications to the Lord. And now, O Lord our God, who has brought thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has made a name for thyself, as it is this day, we have sinned. We are wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, let now thine anger and thy wrath turn away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, O God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications for thy sake. O Lord, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. O my God, 
Incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by thy name. For we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merits of our own, but on account of thy great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For thine own state for thine own sake, O my God, do not delay, because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. It is this last line that sums up Daniel's prayer. Daniel does not throw God's prophecy back at him. God, you promised it was only going to be 70 years of captivity. He never mentions it. Instead, what was at stake here was the name of the Lord. His name infers his character, his acts, and his reputation. Daniel pleads with the Lord to turn away his wrath from his city, from his sanctuary that lies in ruins. It is only in that last line that Daniel includes Israel as the people who are called by his name. Daniel wants God to rise, to reign over his designated city, and be worshipped rightly in that place. He wants the reproach of the nations removed from the name of Yahweh. Suddenly, as Daniel is still praying in a crescendo of passion, Gabriel, remember the angel Gabriel, appears before him as he had done in Susa by the Ulai Canal. Now, quote, Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, in behalf of the holy mountain of God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. <clears throat> Even as Daniel had just begun to pray, the Lord had commanded Gabriel to come with answers from Yahweh. The Lord is more eager to answer than we are to pray. Again, the Lord is more eager to answer than we are to pray. Gabriel appears in manlike form and communicates in a manlike way to this man Daniel. He assures Daniel he's deeply loved, and Gabriel is there to deliver the message with the insight and understanding the Lord wants Daniel to have. Gabriel speaks of a vision, but a message and a vision are synonymous and happen to be doubled here for emphasis. There should be exclamation points here. What is coming to Daniel will be awesome. Verses 24 to 7, 27 are the word of the Lord to and through Daniel. These four verses are the most difficult Hebrew in the book to translate and to interpret. These four verses have been trashed and thrashed by those who hate biblical prophecy. Those who have been, you know, scholars but they don't like each other. They don't like each other's position. There's a lot of abrasion between even godly scholars over these four verses. So we're going to stop right here. We're going to stop and pray. Lord God, we belong to you. We long for insight and understanding from you. We want your words, not some timeline. 
not some biblical speculation. Open our eyes and ears. Open our hearts and minds to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Then Gabriel said, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up prophecy and vision, and to anoint the most holy place. Now here Daniel gives, excuse me, Gabriel gives Daniel a summary, a list of what is to be accomplished in the 70 weeks prophecy. Now, it's, it is a given that the reference to a week is a set of seven years, not seven days. Every seven years, if you recall, Israel was to let the land rest, to lay fallow and eat what the Lord had provided in the previous six years. Every seven by seven years, Israel was to prepare for the Jubilee year in the 50th year. Israel was to forgive debt, release indentured servants and slaves, and celebrate a Jubilee before the Lord. Okay, it's speculated, mind you, and there may be some truth to this. It is speculated the Lord states that the 70 weeks of years is announced, and in so doing, he is, is, um, is talking about the number of years uh, of, of uh, where the land was supposed, the Sabbath years, where the land was supposed to stay val- uh, fallow, and the Jubilee years, when the debts were to be forgiven and the slaves released, which Israel totally disregarded for 700 years. God's prophecies are holistic to men and to the land. Now, continuing with this summary, only the crucifixion of Jesus takes away sin and God's wrath. His death made atonement for all iniquity for all time. Now, obviously, the death of Christ did not put a final end to men's sin and iniquity, but a way has been opened in Christ to be restored to a relationship to God and righteousness. Everlasting righteousness is yet to come. Prophecy and vision has yet to be sealed up. And the Hebrew text does not say place here, the last word in in that phrase from, from Gideon. Okay, that was added by the translation team trying to clarify something. It is entirely possible that the anointing of the Most Holy speaks of Christ at his second coming. We'll find out. Now here the controversy starts. Are those 490 literal years, or are they symbolic years? For those who hate prophecy, they cling to the literal consecutive years flowing forward from Daniel believing that those, quote, prophecies, unquote, that follow were fulfilled by Antiochus IV Epiphanes during the Maccabean period of, in the intertestamental time. To them, it is simply history, without any God intervention. Other elements of Daniel's previous prophecies rule out this view. Verses 25 to 27 describes what will happen in this vision, as described by the message delivered by Gabriel. Quote, So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven years and 62, excuse me, seven weeks of years and 62 weeks of years. It will be built again with plaza and moat 
even in times of distress, that after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even at the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Seven years. Okay. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come to make desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who, make, who makes desolate. So the message here is divided into 70 weeks of years. And that into three different groups. First, seven weeks, and then 62 weeks, and then one week of years. Here, there's been a great scholarly tussle. Are these years 360 days long? Because that was practiced in Egypt and Assyria and Greece and other, other nations. Or was it 365-day years? And which decree starts the 49 years, if you will, seven weeks of years, running for the rebuilding of Jerusalem? And do we accept a gap of 2,000 plus years nearly between Messiah being cut off and the final seven years of the prophecy? So, I will give you my best, knowing that it's going to be incomplete. And I want to do this humbly, because I don't get it all yet. Okay, If you cling to the 360-day year, you would trash the Jewish calendar. It would put it into a very fluid state. And there would be no particular set times for the new year, for the Day of Atonement, for Passover, you know, for, for Pentecost. It would just shift all around the calendar. So I, I believe that we're dealing with 365-day years. I believe that the decree from Artaxerxes given to Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem and restore the walls, begins that run of 49 years, starting in 444 B.C. 49 years later, that's the first seven weeks of years, 49 years later, the city was walled, the streets had been rebuilt, a ditch for defense had been dug around the walls, and life had returned to Jerusalem as a city. Then extrapolating the next 62 weeks of of seven years each, okay, from 395 B.C., another 435 years, puts us at the date of the death of Jesus. The problem is that the dates don't line up. History has the death of Jesus placed between A.D. 28 and A.D. 33, but here the numbers run to A.D. 39. So there are many who have wrestled with the numbers. They've published they proclaim that the Lord is returning at any moment, but none fully satisfy me. Many have published, okay? But I don't think they have it yet. And none have it yet to match the prophecy of Daniel. The last division of seven years would exactly line up with the seven-year tribulation period during which the Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel. But halfway through, three and a half years through, <clears throat> he breaks the treaty, defiles the temple with additional abominations, things that are detestable, and tramples Jerusalem for 42 months. That's three and a half years. The last line in verse 27 speaks of a complete destruction. That is the slaying of the Antichrist that has already been decreed. 
that complete destruction is said to be poured out on the one who makes desolate, the one who causes global horror. So, Forge family, we all need insight and understanding. Daniel's vision of 70 weeks of years puts us in the gap between the cutting off of Messiah and the final seven years of the tribulation. We know with certainty that God keeps his promises and he has promised to return for his bride, the church. Be encouraged with these messages, these insights into end times events. We do not yet see clearly, but by faith we know what is coming. Now there have been times of desolation, slaughter, and moral degradation behind us in history. Here, here we are, poised for what comes next. The God of Daniel stands ready to answer our prayers before you are finished praying. Use Daniel's adoration, confession, and focus on his works, character, and reputation as a prayer outline. Whose name is at stake in your life and choices? Whose name is at stake in America today? Now, granted, we're not Israel. We're not his chosen people. But our nation was founded on his works, character, and reputation, played out largely in the lives of the founding fathers. They weren't perfect, but they called on your name, and they laid down documents and practices that represented your works, character, and reputation. We've been mightily blessed, but in the turning away of many, now we too stand like Daniel, deeply concerned even anguished for the reproach of the name of God. Let's pray. Lord, there's none like you. You alone take away sin and guilt. You alone bring us into your presence where there's nothing broken and nothing lacking. We rush to you these days, expecting that you will defend your name, your sons and daughters, and this nation. We lift up your name over us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge family. Love you. Look forward to being with you again soon.